Hi Right Brainers, Larry Anderson here. In this episode, I interview film director and cinematographer Pierre Deschamps. Pierre's films have been selected in more than 70, yes, that's 7-0, international film festivals. He's won awards in the categories of Best Feature Documentary, Best Short Documentary, Best Editing and Best Cinematography. Notably, he made the documentary 15, Beyond the Tri-Line, which against the backdrop of the 2015 Rugby World Cup takes you behind the scenes to understand what the sport of rugby means to everyone who touches the game. He has rare interviews with the likes of Prince Harry, Johnny Wilkinson, Dan Carter and Eddie Jones. It's one of my most honest interviews and you'll hear some gems about sources of inspiration, the importance of family support again and the type of commitment you need to follow through on your dreams. Enjoy, like, comment and share. Okay, Pierre. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very fine, and you? No, no. Uh, yeah, good. Yeah, surviving. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, getting used to the new norm. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so thanks for agreeing to be part of the Right Brain Stories uh, podcast and video. Um, do you want to just tell the uh, users, uh, the, the, the listeners and the viewers um, who you are and a bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm Pierre Deschamps, I'm French, and um, um, my background is in a uh, still photography and old 8mm film. Um, always had a passion for, you know, telling stories in, in different ways. Uh, and imagery has been the main vector. Um, and from that, I moved into a, the most more digital world, in a, in a way, uh, spending many years in the French television industry, doing lots of TV shows, entertainment, sports, music, so forth, and moved to Denmark, um, where I started to write my own story and start shooting my own, my own little films. Um, and that's how somehow I built up my experience. Um, and from that, I've been lucky enough to write longer stories and, and make feature documentaries and, uh, in different areas. Uh, and today I'm still writing stories and trying to get the funding uh, for it. Mm. So you mentioned about France, uh, being French, and then um, Denmark, uh, and we know each other from the UK. Explain your, uh, paint a picture of your journey, <laughs> your, your travels. Yeah. So I'm thinking a little bit of... Yeah, and also yeah. How, how it has influenced your life and your storytelling. Um, yes, I've always traveled. I lived, a, um, I lived in, the, in the Caribbean when I was younger. I lived in the States, moved back to France, met my lovely wife, who's Danish, moved to Denmark. And from there, we've decided that we should have an experience uh, in different places and involving our kids. And we've always, we never moved for a job. We decided to move. And then we said, okay, we'll find a job. And, and where we moved, we we always figure it out to do little things for uh, either the, the tourism office, uh, our local clients, and then we, we did that. Um, and then when we were in the Caribbean, we moved back to France and we went to the UK, like you said, for eight years. And it was time to move again. So we moved back to France and we finally moved back to Denmark. Uh, and there, you know, we're doing corporate videos and then still shooting some documentaries and, and planning two or three new documentaries 
um, to come, but I just like to move. I like to go around and then try to, uh, yeah, find my way. And um, uh, you've uh, you mentioned your wife. Um, tell me about. I mean, you know, I, I always think that as um, creatives, there's many ups and downs. And um, what I've noticed on the podcast is that family support is critical and, and often makes a, a big difference. Um, what's the best piece of advice or encouragement that your wife has ever given you when you maybe have been feeling a bit down? First of all, I've got really full support from her. She seemed to have appreciate the, the, the style, the kind of things I do or uh, the way I see it or the way I frame it or the way I tell the stories. But she's being the, what do you call it in, in English, the backbone of it. I mean, without her, forget about it. It's just, it's just a downfall. So she's been supporting him more um, psychologically, spiritually, financially as well, because that's a tough one. You know, when you're freelance, it's, it's really like this. Right. So she's had most of the uh, fixed job, you know, bringing money into the, the household and, and I've been providing when it works well, you know, if the money comes, flows, but when it's not working, that's when you need real support. Right? So, and then she's always backed me up on this, but I think it's very tough for her because I'm, I'm really like a little bit in the clouds there and then just thinking about my stories, how could it be? And, you know, what I want to say and the struggle with it. And, and she has to, she keeps the, the boat. <laughs> she keeps the boat. So um, she's always, um, she's always been very criticized of my work, you know, and then she's always been frank saying, I don't feel it. I don't see it, you know, and that, that's, that's a tough um, ego, <laughs> ego. Uh, the ego has to be uh, lower down and humility is very important there. Mm-hmm. because yeah. you, you think you think you get a story and you think it's the best in the world and then you think it's going to be great and it's going to look and then someone very close to you who loves you tells you uh-uh. that's a tough one sometimes but, yeah. yeah but You're, you have to listen harshest critics sometimes can be the person yeah. close to you but then also you know that it's it's the most honest feedback you'll get because other people may not give you honest feedback yeah yeah um, but that's maybe the difference between what I do, and I would say true artists, I think true artists, even though I consider myself an artist because I create stuff, but true artists, I would, would probably don't even care or mind what some, who someone is telling them. They would just do what they want to do, no matter the cost, no matter, you can see it with the great painters and so forth. They just did it. Mm. Mm. So, and I'm a I'm little bit, you know, I need to, you know, three kids, you know, need to watch out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that influence on your kids a bit later. Mm. Um, what, when you think about, you know, telling stories, filmmaking, and you talked about making, making films wherever you travel to, when you think back to your, was there a moment in your childhood when you thought, this is what I, have to do or maybe you're a young man but this is what I really it's not that you want to do it but you have to do it you get up every day and you, and you 
have to do? What, what was the moment when you decided you have to tell stories and make films? Um, probably when I came back to Denmark, for the first time when I came to Denmark, I wasn't in my zone of comfort. I had a, all my friends were in France. So when I wanted to film something, I didn't have my pass. I had a lot of French cameramen who will always help me there and there, and they were not there. And at that point, I decided, well, you know, this is what I want to do. So I have to find a way. So I learned how to film. I learned how to edit. And I decided that that's, this was going to be my path. And um, at the same time, I didn't want to, to do what I was educated for anymore. Uh, I was educated chef in France. And I did that for many years. I traveled a lot and, and, and cooked here and there. And I, I said, stop. I didn't want it to do it anymore. I really felt my password into telling stories or, or, or take a shot of someone or a situation and freeze it and tell a story that way. I, I didn't, you know, I wanted to always jump between the two still photography and cinematography, but I really felt this is really what I want to do. I think that's this time where I didn't have anyone with me and I had to find a way and then, you know, that, that was it. And um, uh, thinking about your, um, you know, how you make your films, let's just focus on that for a moment. Um, I mean, I'm not, it may well be that your style has evolved, but yeah. tell, us, tell us about your style, your style of um, filmmaking. Um, my style of filmmaking, it's probably not conventional in a way that, you know, you have certain rules in filmmaking, which I never really applied to myself. And at the same time, it might be very conventional because um, it's, it's kind of static. You know, I'm not moving too much. I like to think with a, uh, um, using a tripod. I, I don't like to move too much. I don't like to think handheld too much. Um, so I'm, um, this is, I, I'm really focusing on in a very specific frame. Um, that's first and foremost, that's, that's the thing. Uh, whether I've, I have an eye or not, I don't know. Um, I don't know, I can see, okay, in the back. Um, so yes, I think got it's uh, I got good disconnected there for a yeah, while. Let me, let me close the, the door if that's okay. Okay, sure. Are you in a meeting? Yeah, so it, it's all well, lights. Um, yeah, so it's it's a. Um, I feel comfortable when I'm on a tripod, um, and I, I like to take my time and and really uh, observe. And I shoot a lot uh, for that. So when I'm in a, I can't. The best example maybe of my style is is my short film Man of the Soil. To tell the story of a. The journey of a Rastafarian, a typical day of a Rastafarian in the, in the jungle. And the idea was to first observe what he's doing, what it's his, his journey and how he behaves and so forth. And afterwards was to 
I had decided what I will film is to try capturing this without um, um, obstructing in, in, on his journey. So I will follow him and change lenses as it, go, as it goes. So I, would, I will catch him in a river a little bit far away on a wide shot. And, and, and when I felt high at the shot, I would just simply take my lens, put a new lens, focus on a different framing, which brought me closer to him. And I will do that a third time with a more uh, teleobjective lens. And I will get my, my uh, close-ups. And, and somehow that's, that's what I like to do. I, uh, I don't want to waste time. I don't want to um, think too much. So I really play with the lenses all the time to try to capture a specific time. Is there somebody, uh, an influence in terms of filmmaking, a director or, or um, a photographer, painter that is stylistically an influence in what you do? If there's not, that's fine. No, there's, there's, <laughs> no, I would say that there's really a, a filmmaker that I really uh, would like to make my documentary the same style, but it's impossible. It's Wes Anderson. Oh, okay. I um. just love, I just love this idea of tracking. So you sliding. Yeah. yeah. And then you pushing in. And then and again, there's another track. And then it's always very, uh, uh, very uh, smooth. Uh, I think very filmic, very uh, elegant, but it's such in a control environment. And that's why I said it's almost impossible <laughs> for me to do it because uh, if I'm out in the desert or in the jungle or in, in Norway, up, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And I, I'm a one-man band most of the time, but I, I would really like to see the effect of telling a documentaries at a Wes Anderson style. I would love that. I like that. I mean, he's, he's actually got, I believe, yes, I think he's got a book, like a coffee table book about the style of Wes Anderson. Um, I seem to recall buying it for somebody at like, last Christmas. It'd be worth yeah. checking out. But uh, yes. um, the, I, I want you to go through that, that, that process again, just to explain it to our viewers and listeners and actually to me, because it sounds really interesting because different obviously different lenses and different shots have different effects in terms of yeah. the way yeah. stories are told. Um, and the fact that you like to use uh, a tripod um, versus, I don't know, is that because you don't use handheld or? Yes, because I, I, uh, I don't know. I like when it's a, um, uh, I like when it's square, clean. And I guess that's why I'm referring to him because it's always so clean so just uh, and and then the, the the what do you call it the style that he brings on also it's so specific um which in in, in documentary is almost impossible but uh, um i just i, I never really like uh, moving too much with my cameras i never like that then it might change because of the new tools that you you get in uh which helps you maybe to move in a more smooth way so now you have the Canon just uh, um, uh, released two cameras yesterday, two mirrorless cameras, which has an IBIS in, internal. So it's a, sta a stabilization system. And now you, you really, you're able to make movement 
that are smooth, that are not too shaky. And, uh, and that might be a, an interesting one uh, for me to use. I'm always afraid that it's going to be moving too much for some reason. I like when it's, yeah, smooth and static and clean. Because uh, what, what, you, what you described um, almost sounds like, um, and it's, I, don't, I don't really like the phrase, it sounds like an ethnographic film. You're, you're following a people or peoples in um, maybe uncontrolled situations and um, um, but how do you plan therefore if you're going to be in uncontrolled situations how do you plan your um, shots um, or do you just let it I mean tell us about the process that you have that you go through well, you, you know a situation and you get an idea, but you can't plan really. I mean, you can, you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be able to put my tripod here. This is where I am. This is my area of action. What can I do with this? That's the only thing basically you can do. I think in a, in a, uh, in a documentary environment, it's very difficult to or maybe I don't, the subject, maybe my subject, but it's very difficult to control all the way. And if you control too much, then you're not open to let improvisation coming in. So you have to be very open to situation changing and you have to change with it. Um, but I, I know that the, there's many cinematographers in the fiction world, in, in, in you know, the, the industry, who use a lot of times a 40 millimeters and they will get kind of close to their subject. Um, and I tend to try to be far away because somehow I am afraid of that proximity. Maybe I'm afraid of disturbing too much my subject, but it is true that when you get closer to your subject, something else happens. And that may be where I'm moving forward, being more, um, close to my subject as opposite to be far away and using the tools to get closer. In the, in the case of this Rastaman, I didn't want him to feel me. I wanted him to be, you know, natural as, as he is. And suddenly when you bring into an environment that is not used to it, you bring a camera, a tripod, lenses, you make noise and so forth. You know, I didn't want it to disturb it. And maybe that's why I shot it that way. Um, you take a different film of mine and then I would probably behave in a different way. But uh, that specific style, I love it. And, and I really would like to, to make more little films like this where I could do the same thing. And in terms of, I mean, we were talking beforehand about, um, you know, current projects and everything. In terms of um, the process of writing, collaborating, um, trying to get um, funding, um, that sort of pre-production process from idea to um, to the day before the shoot. Well, how does that work for you and how has that changed over the years? Um, okay, how that works. I, I did films that we, my spouse and myself, produced and financed, so little films. And we also financed a... Um, a longer film about rugby where we had to travel to New Zealand and, and no broadcasters were interested about. And I really wanted to shoot it. And I found 
not only that's when my wife backed me up again, you know, saying you really want to do it. I think it's a great idea. We have to find a way. And I had two of my best friends who also put money in it. And one of them went to travel with me in New Zealand for 12 weeks almost. So that was a way of financing, which we know is not at all how it should work uh, because I'm, I'm such a not business-minded person. Um, I'm not realistic at all in that sense. What has changed is that I met people, and, and actually quite recently, who thinks more in terms of business, in terms of opportunity and so forth. And what has changed, I think, in, in the, there's a Netflix sort of model that's changed a lot. And, and if you look at what they do, I just received a week ago a mail with 15 questions. And I think that's the mother. It started with, what's the title? The log line, one sentence. You know, what's the project? And so forth and so forth. And actually, that's a very efficient way. I think when they look at those documents, they know. They know if you're ready. They know what's the story. And they know whether or not it's going to be efficient. I think it's a, it's a very interesting um, tool for them, but also for us, creative. If we're capable of answering those questions, we're ready somehow, or the story might be worth it investing in it. If we're not, <laughs> and I think I need to, to think this way, because if not, I can't continue writing story and say, okay, I'm going to go and shoot it. It's going to be great because I'm not going to be able to finance and I'm not going to be, <laughs> I won't have enough money and then it will never end anywhere. So I really need to focus now on that model um, in order to hope making new project. So there's more writing, there's more thinking beforehand. So yeah, so it sounds like things are evolving from the festival um, sales to the more platform sales. So you're, you're selling to Amazon, Netflix. Yeah, I've been National Geographic. Um, I, I would love to be able to work with them. I've got a project that I'm trying to, to push uh, in this direction. And, and, and for me, it's, it's so difficult <laughs> to think, to know exactly what's going to happen in that story. I, I got a, a, a general frame, but time uh, let the story unfold. So I can't provoke that very much. It unfolds in, in one direction or not. So when we went to shoot this project in New Zealand, I had thought beforehand, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 this. And then I met a, I did some interviews in front of French rugby player, and I met one player specifically called uh, Chabal, and he's known around the world, you know, the caveman, and he's... Oh, he a forward, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, huge tackles and so forth. And he told me, listen, go to New Zealand, because when you're going to get there, you'll see a completely different story. And when you come back, you'll have other questions, a new question to ask me. And he was right. I got in New Zealand and the documentary went this way. It, I didn't do what I thought I would do. And it ended up being actually a great story that 
we, we saw to, or Canal Plus came in uh, as a participation and financed the film as well. So yeah, let, let things come. And that's why it's so difficult for me to, to know for sure what the story is going to be beforehand. It's interesting to mention and Canal Plus because I feel like I see them in the closing credits of really good documentaries and, and uh, movies. They seem to be a really good sponsor, executive producer um, of these things. I, I, I don't know what their mission is or their vision, but um, have you noticed that at all? Uh, they're very present in the in the fiction world. Mm. That's for sure. And mm. Because they, I think it's part of their, at the time it was part of their strategy, they were called the cinema channel in France. So they were investing a lot of money into movies. Uh, they, got, they had a lot of TV shows about movies and then doing a lot of stuff. And it, that, was, that was to do with prestige as well. Yeah. Uh, so they've been investing. I don't know what their position today. I think the group, Canal Plus, has been going a little bit in different direction. Uh, and they were also known for being the football channel, very strong on sports in general. So that was, I think, their main focus. Mm. Um, so in, in that sense, yes. But actually at the time, they were not interested by our things. And when we were in New Zealand, it happened to, there was a earthquake in Christchurch while we yep. were shooting. Um, and they were supposed to send a team in New Zealand, which they didn't. Uh, and when one of my friends sent me a text in New Zealand says, if you want to contact Canal Plus is now, because they're going to need some content. So we contacted them, we put together a 15 minutes sort of a trailer or whatever. We sent it over and um, we met them when we came back and then they, they bought the film. Wow. So with this, with this film that you did, um, tell us a bit more about it and, you know, and also I'm interested in your saying how you had one strategy for the film beforehand and then you went and visited and then it turned into something else. Tell us a bit more about that and, and how it, you know, yeah. the, the, I, the content in terms of uh, New Zealand rugby. I think it, it's a, um, in many ways it would have, what we think of New Zealand rugby in France, we don't know, <laughs> basically. We think, we know, yeah, there's the All Blacks, there's the most successful team in the world and there's a sort of a mythical approach to the old blacks uh, and the haka and, and and i thought i would tell the story you know a little bit with knowing thinking i knew but then i, I got there and i met someone who wasn't related to rugby at all he was related in the tattoo world and i had contacted him six months before because i wanted to make a tattoo which i did and and he said Okay, so you're doing a film about New Zealand rugby in general. So he says, we were in uh, two hours north of Auckland in the North Island. He says, go down to Dunedin, which is the most south uh, city, and you're going to meet this guy. This guy was called Case Muse, huge prop for the Old Blacks. He, and the guy actually had played in cast in France. So he met with me. It was wonderful. And then we talked a lot. And then he says, okay, now you're going to see this guy um, who actually was the guy teaching the old blacks the haka. So we drove around and we met this guy who says, now you're going to go and see that guy. And it went this way. And what we figured out is that 
the New Zealand Rugby Union was monitoring these two French guys going around, and which they told me afterwards. He said, well, we know who you are. You know, we've been, you know, checking you out. And, um, and we got lucky uh, as well uh, along the way. Um, a fantastic time where we were at the airport going to Christchurch um, three, four weeks after the, the earthquake. And I wanted to really have Daniel Carter and Richie Mako in the film, I think very important. Uh, no way to get through to them. And I met Daniel Carter at the airport. No way. So I went to see him because I had met him two years before in, in uh, Wales. And he said, yeah, sure, no, no worries, mate, come tomorrow, I'll, I'll give you an interview. And so, you know, we, we had the gods with us <laughs> to make this film as well. Wow. So, yeah, so, and, and I, we could have not imagined this. We could have not foreseen. And, and, and how did it change? How did your, how did your perception of New Zealand rugby change um, after the visit? Well, I, what changed is that it's not about the old blacks somehow, it's about the people. It's about, and that's why I call it Tangata, uh, which means the people, which is the old blacks are the old blacks because of the people. And it started in grassroots rugby. The old community gather around the club at grassroots level. And from your five years old in New Zealand, everybody knows about everybody. If you are showing talent at five years old, the, the New Zealand Rugby Union is gonna spot you and it's gonna see how you evolve. So, and if you don't have this interaction between New Zealand Rugby Union and the clubs, it wouldn't function and they're very strong at it. And it's the main sport. It's a king sport in, in New Zealand. So um, yes, there's a link here and the people are linked. And, and I think that's, that's the key. It's the people, and I would have never expected this before. I thought it was just about, yeah, this mythical old blacks and the haka and so forth. No, it's about the people, humble people and passionate people. It's interesting because I, I would imagine that whale, whales could be similar, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the size of the country, the, the population, mm -hmm. um, the passion for rugby, um, but it, it Welsh rugby is not on the same level of brand as New Zealand All Black rugby. Maybe there's too many other distractions. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know, that's what it seems to be to me. No, but you're right. You're right, actually. It's, uh, it's almost 5 million people and it's the main sport and they're passionate about it. Maybe the difference is because just around Wales, you have England, Scotland, Ireland. I mean, they're all there and there's a big competition there. Um, but you know, they're one of the best anyway. Mm. You know, I think mm. the, the situation of New Zealand is unique. They are like lost in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and they need to show to the world that they are present, that they are there. Yeah. And, and, and that's what makes it unique as well. And, and the success, and I think a lot of teams before, I think it's changed, but before, if they knew they were going to meet New Zealand, it meant, well, we're gonna lose. So yeah. there was a, a psychological, maybe, a, you know, a, what you call it, a complex of inferiority when you met the All Blacks. And on top of this, you had the Aka. <laughs> so, you know, why not? but I think this has changed. Uh, and, and England yeah. showed, showed the way, and France before showed the way. That yeah. They're, they're beatable. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. So just, just sort of changing 
lane a little bit. Um, you talked about your three kids. T tell me about them in, in terms of, you know, how much you're comfortable with, but in terms of your, the influence of your travel on them and, and also your chosen profession of being a filmmaker. Mm. Um, it, it had a different impact on the different kid. So if you take my older kid, Cassius, uh, what he wants to make sure is that his life is secure <laughs> and, you know, stable uh, because this is, it, you know, it's not his nature. So he wants to, he doesn't want that uh, uh, roller coaster uh, life. And I could see the effect on him. It's really, uh, it's such the opposite in a way. Uh, it's quite funny. Uh, and now that I don't want to be a sultan monk, you know, I don't want to be someone who works, don't work, don't work. So that's quite funny. Um, the two girls, um, one of them is wants to be a, uh, into scripting, you know, so she's, she's been accepted to four different universities, uh, film universities in, in England for next year. So she I think she's decided to go for Brighton. So it's quite interesting. And the second one, she's also very creative. Um, she wants to design clothes. She's drawing a lot. She's you know, very creative. So in that sense, they've chosen that path. Uh, my son is a physiotherapist, so it's a different path. And he's playing rugby as well. So that's a, that's a different thing. Uh, but now very interesting how um, he's more mature and he doesn't want to struggle because you've seen us struggling. Obviously. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's, it's, I just find it fascinating that relationship between the parents and what they do and, and what the ch children do. Um, what sort of, apart from the travel, what sort of environment did you create or allow the kids to flourish in so that you're helping them to become what they want to be rather than what you want them to be? Isn't it that the big, the big question when you're a parent, you know, obviously you would like the kids to, I personally would like them to be happy and do whatever they want to do. At least giving them the tool to try, you know, not, you know, don't, don't, don't think already at 16, 17, 18, you know how the world functions and you're going to go this way and that's going to be that all your life. Uh, so being open-minded as a kid, but as a parent to say, you want to try this? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, it, it's, it's not, a, I think you, my philosophy is that you're creating your own path. Um, so you have the will to go left or right or left. Mm. Just go for it. Try what you have to lose. And then uh, mostly when you're 18 years old, you know, the world is your oyster. Try stuff. But I know it's sometimes it could be uh, irresponsible as a dad. I should maybe uh, choose a more strict path and say, you started this, you need to do that. And, but I'm not. I just want them to uh, bloom and every day being able to do something they like and, and not, being, uh, not doing something they dislike, for sure. Mm. And, and how have they, I mean, how have your discussions and um, um, reactions with you and your family been around the whole lockdown and yeah. in the way that Denmark had a particular way of dealing with uh, 
when COVID-19. Yeah, Denmark has been quite strict in the sense that uh, I think people here, the, the Danes, have been listening very well to um, the politicians. Uh, and, and it was like, keep your distance so the Danes will keep their distance. When you go into the supermarket, there was line, the, the Danes respect everything, you know, and in France, it would go like this. Oh, right? you should come, but, you should imagine in Brighton, Pierre, oh my word. <laughs> but in Denmark, you don't, you, you, you know, the authorities are telling you to do this, you do. And I think they've been able to keep uh, the levers very low uh, for that matter. I think it, it had a huge influence on how the crisis evolved. Um, but in terms of work, I think a lot of industries have been really uh, struggling, uh, like everybody else, uh, like everywhere else. Uh, me personally, I almost didn't work. So um, I think I did one or two edit on a for a client, and the rest of the time I spend my time with my one of my daughter creating a line of product like uh, we created elderflower syrup. Rose syrup, we've been working on uh, ginger beer, um, vinegars, and so forth. So we've been, we've been busy. We've been trying to be creative in a different way. That's cool. That's, yeah, cool. that's cool. So, uh, yeah, but uh, no, no, it's huge impact. And everybody's asking in the industry, how are we going to start shooting again? You know, how is it going to be? Are we wearing masks? You know, are we keeping distance between the technicians and so forth? Uh, so when you're one man band like this is like me, it's more easy somehow. Uh, but when there is an interaction with someone, that's tricky. Yeah, because I remember looking quite a few months ago, um, once we went into lockdown, about as a report. I don't know if it was Variety magazine or Hollywood Reporter or something talking about the numbers of people that had lost their jobs in Hollywood because yeah. of lockdown, because they are part of a crew. Part, you know, a part of, uh, you know, the cast and crew. And um, it's, you know, there might be a hairdresser, it might be, you know, a film colorist. It, it, it just, there's so many jobs, you know. Um, and so it is really interesting to think about how, you know, how things will change in the future. Um, well, I mean, again, you know, you go, let's say you find yourself in, in shooting a thing in, in Syria, where it goes, you know, a bit bonkers, everybody's still, you know, out together. And then you, you just go with your life every day. You know, you won't have the same restriction because of what's happening there. Um, so we, we, we are lucky again to be able to, to do what we do or to restrict ourselves the way we can restrict ourselves. There's, there's many people who cannot. Um, but that's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's going to go back to normal, uh, hopefully, you know, but uh, what I'm afraid is not so this, what I'm afraid is, how is it going to start again? How are people going to behave the moment they get a green light? Oof. I'm afraid it's going to go bonkers <laughs> everywhere. Um, I'm afraid so. Uh, although maybe we should, you know, be cautious in a, in a, in a way. It's, I think it's a really important um, uh, sort of concept really in terms of or, or, or approach coming out of lockdown because going into lockdown you 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 know that you're going to be you're reducing you know in in many ways coming out of lockdown it's a bit like coming out of a darkened room 
if you've been in a darkened room for a long time, you can't just open your eyes. You know, it, 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 it can cause damage. And, and also, think about the metaphor of being in a darkened room. You know, you, you, it affects your body in, in different ways. So coming out of lockdown again, you know, you think about how you're going to rebuild relationships, be not anxious when you're traveling, you know, um, there's all sorts of things. And it, it does make me think that there'll be lots of, this is a time in history, right? There'll be lots of stories, lots of things written about it. Um, some fake things, some, some real things, you know. Um, but you know, a lot of people have told me, you know, uh, you know, is it not too difficult? Is it not too, but I could be dead. You know, I mean, for me, I always go back to that, you know, you know, how do you measure difficult or difficulties? There's so many people who lost their lives. So somehow I'm lucky. It's easy for me. You know, I'm not going to start complaining because it's easy for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of people went through a very, very, very tough times. Yeah. And, and what, what is the question for me, what is tricky is that we know things have reopened for the economy, not for the people. If it was aiming for people and safety and security, we'd still be in the lockdown. So it, it, it's reopened because of economy again, one more time. So we need to ask ourselves a question about that. And it's a challenge because we've grown to rely on a specific type of economy, and they call it a growth economy, you know, where you have to grow every time. It's a bit like winning a football league. You've got to buy more players to stay in the same place. Um, this is definitely an opportunity to change, though, I think. Um, um, but um, I, I think about how things have been reported, and scientific reporting is always very difficult. And... If you get non-scientists reporting, it's difficult, and sometimes scientists can't communicate, sometimes they can. Yeah. One thing that um, it'd be good to discuss is um, how the press have been treated um, during the during protests, and because um, to me that has been slightly shocking, you know, um, especially if you are press when you go to a war zone, Mm -hmm. you, you're there to tell your story, you've got your, your um, flat jacket, you've got press on it, and you normally have got a, a pass to be able to show what's going on to the world. What, what do you think, as a, as a filmmaker, like many of the press cameramen, what, what do you think about this situation and the fact that the press seem to be terrorised at the moment? They are, but when, I mean, I, I, I never worked in a press environment, but when you have the president of the United States as the fucking cuckoo, who's always treating the press in a way that I can't, I mean, I, I can't believe that the press let themselves spoken that way. If I was in a, in a press conference and the guy talked to me like this, I basically would tell him to fuck off whether he's the president of the United States or not. I mean, he's treating everybody and this the guy who's at the, you know, is the president of the United States and is allowing himself to say and do things that it's inimaginable for me. I just, I can't believe that people are letting him, let him in doing and saying what he says. Well, they, they well, say they, that you, you, you get the leaders that you deserve. 
because people vote. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but remember, it's, it's not it's not all Americans who voted for him, right? So I mean, so I mean, so that means that you know, uh, but it's it's incredible as well. What is you know, one of my new things talks about slavery, racism, and discrimination. That's what I'm writing at the moment with my brother-in-law, an African American based in South Carolina. I mean, you have the president of the United States who talks about white supremacy. Come on, man. 2000, uh, 2020. And openly, he talks about that. You know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of depressing, but I mean, I think, I think for me, it, it just, when, when the press started getting attacked by the police, it, it was a shock to me because the narrative that we would get in the West generally is, okay, we're dem democratic and we have, you know, s certain pillars of democracy like the independence of the judiciary, which is probably a bit of a myth um, when you look at sentencing, um, but then having freedom of the press. And yeah, I mean, the press aren't, are no saints, but when, when I see cameramen getting attacked, it was almost like a pivotal moment to me. You know, one press person had their eye, they lost their eye, you know, um, some were attacked and sprayed in their face. It just, as, as a storyteller, as, a, as somebody who wants to just, you know, believe in the power of stories, it was just shocking to me. I mean, you've got Black Lives Matter, you've got all these different things and the election, but it, it, for me, it just was a moment where democracy is not perfect, right? But it's oh. almost like the moment where democracy died. Yeah, but you're completely right. I mean, I, I'm not... I've seen examples of the press um, creating a narrative which had no facts and anything oh, based, and they yeah. were just saying things that because the other magazines were saying it or their colleagues were saying it, so they would just write the same stories and there was no foundation of reality or facts or whatever. So this is discutable. Uh, this is, you can talk about it, uh, whether or not, you know, if you let the press say whatever they want to say, uh, without verifying the facts, you know, we should be able to verify the facts, but that's a different story than mistreating the press and yeah. being brutal with the press. Let them do their work and let's see what they write. And, and yes, freedom of the press, it's a big one for democracy. And, but what is interesting is that they're very specific countries who don't let the press be who they are. And we know those countries, and they are always the same. And you wonder, you wonder why? And, and what is the international community really doing? Not talking about the organization who's trying to protect the press, but maybe the, the decision makers. What are they really doing? Sometimes not much because the countries who oppress the press are their friends. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when a country is invaded, what's the first building that gets bombed? Yeah. television stations yeah. and newspaper you know the, the, the media yeah. so that shows you that the, the pen is True. mightier than the sword you know True. Um, so just as we sort of round up what, what other sorts of um, creative inspirations do you have do you do, do you have inspiration from um, 
you know, art artists and art galleries, fine artists, graphic design, American literature in the 20th century, um, you know, wh whose are the YouTube videos that you look up? I don't. I, I, uh, <laughs> I try to, uh, to write stories that have been in my mind for a while. Um, and, and maybe I think, okay, that's the time to dig in. Um, I've been, you know, I live in the Caribbean and there's this very specific island that I love. It's called the Commonwealth of Dominica. And I really would like to do a film about um, the, the people who are living there and the island. And I'm still struggling to find the funding, but I'm working on it. Um, I, what's, what I struggled with is that I did a short film about human rights that I sent you, sent you this afternoon. And I have been trying for the last three weeks to communicate a new cut that I did. And the title of the film is called Red is the Color, which the color of our blood as you know, one race. And I did this in a school with some kids and parents and teachers. And man, I've been trying to contact influencers and then a lot of uh, people from Oprah Winfrey to Barack Obama to, I mean, a lot of guys. And I posted, I tried on LinkedIn and Twitter and this, nothing came back. I mean, this is a big, uh, what do you call it, big cloud here. How do you do that? How do you get this little humble and nice thing that just said, come on guys, we need to be together. Um, and you can't because you have your own limitation and I get your own network or whatever. And then you put it on your Facebook and your Twitter and your things. And then you got five views, 10 views, whatever. And, and I've really, I've been really trying hard to, to commit, communicate this. Uh, I think I sent it to Trevor Noah, I think I sent it. <laughs> But nothing, nothing, nothing. I've been struggling with this and trying to understand how do you, I've contacted the BBC, I contact the news, I contact Channel 4, uh, the Danish broadcaster, and, and so nothing. And uh, so that, that is a bit of a, a struggle. Let me give um, it, let me, I'll give it a try. I'll, I'll yes. have a look. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And what, then, what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to get out of the partnerships that you have, you've been trying to no, nothing again you know mm -hmm. and that's when I, nothing is just i think it's a nice little short film that should be seen the message is simple but so obvious and even though it was shot seven eight years ago it is still so relevant and, and that's just my point i'm not doing this for you know getting something back it's just i think it's nice to be to show this to as much as possible, as much people as possible, because it's a nice little message, simply. Um, so, but uh, no, I'm, I'm really uh, working on a project which is very difficult because there's many projects about racism and discrimination and so forth, but I've learned a, a very interesting story from my grandmother when she was alive, that we had a descent from Africa. And I was, I've really been trying to put the, the dots together. So a great, great, grand, grand grandmother who would have been in Louisiana when Louisiana was French. So she was sent to Louisiana. And that woman from Africa would have had an affair with one of a lieutenant from Napoleon and then was sent back to France. 
and that's some of my ancestry, even though I'm a white dude. And um, trying to figure it out, what's going on, and, and trying to find out the, the veracity of it. And I contacted a great aunt last week, and she said, well, yes, actually, I remember. And so she's trying to dig out you know, papers and photos of some of our ancestors to, to figure it out exactly. But beside this, um, I'm trying to develop that story with my um, brother-in-law, who's a minister, who's 70 years old, who lives in South Carolina, the largest port, slave port in the US, who's gonna take a journey to Ghana, the largest slave port in Africa, in Accra. And the idea is to show his life, a different time of his life, where he had to cope with racism and discrimination and as a man of faith because he's a minister and he's delivering message all the time to his congregation and the responsibility that he has and how many times his faith has been tested and the last time his, his faith has been tested was the 25th of May with George Floyd and so it's the idea is to try understanding the old sort of a slavery, racism, discrimination from an African point of view and not from the white man point of view. Because we've discussed with an elderly man in Accra who told us stories about slaves when they got brought up to the US. I mean, I never heard those stories before. It was like amazing. So I, I really want to dig into that and see if we can tell a story again. You know, let's see what will happen. And, and we have this. Uh, this English producer is trying to help on that. That's fascinating. I mean, I think there's yeah, yeah, there's so many stories around. Aren't there's there? So many uh, stories. And who am I to talk about this again? You know, am I legitimate? I'm a legitimate as human because I never understood how come you could criticize and judge a person because of his his color or, or color. Yeah. It's never been my concept. Maybe because somehow in the back of it, there's, I'm related in a sense, I don't know, but it's never been in my house. My father never talked about, you know, um, he's never said anything about being racist or whatever. He, they always talked so nice. And I think that's one of the key. If you're born and, and raised in an environment where people are racist, there's a bigger chance that you become yourself. And then yeah. if you only hear great words, about other people on this planet, then you you sort of in the same model. You're not born racist, are you? You have to learn. You have to learn that. You know. I think so. Through your influences, and it's interesting you say that because I think that will be a really good emotional journey for you because my father's grandmother was white. You know, and I remember I met her once when I was three years old. When we went to Jamaica because uh, there's white people in Jamaica. You know. Um, yeah. Um, and we're hoping to go back next year, actually. Wow. So I think it would be really good to, you know, dig into relatives and records and see how yeah. far back we can go. That would be, I think that would be really... That would be fantastic, even know, personally. Really, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, um, yeah. it's a bit more, I mean, I did the DNA test and I think that's a bit, that's different because that's, that's scientific. It doesn't have the emotions involved in it unless you True. meet the, the people um, or meet people that can tell you stories because that's how we learnt from generations with storytelling passed down, you know. Um, maybe so, it, uh, it starts with this, you know, taking the test that says, you know, 
and maybe it tells you, no, no, there's no ancestry at all. I mean, <laughs> realize that my dad had a, a blood AB plus and his sister is AB plus as well, which is, I've heard is a very typical very, yeah. blood um, type um, in, uh, in Africa. And I don't know if it's a generality. I don't know if it's just something that is said again. So I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out if there is anything I really feel, you know, I want to be legitimate if I dig into that story and then you know, I don't want to just be there. I'm trying to tell a story. It has to it, make sense. It has to be in a context. In many ways, actually, it's a bit the same as people who say all lives matter. You know, because Black Lives Matter, it's not about making black people or people from African heritage higher than anybody else. It's just trying to have equality. So everybody's got their own perspective on that, but it should be a, we should be under this constant um, search for the truth, you know, the yeah. truth. But you know, but you know what, what's interesting, and I think Etashi, my, my wife mentioned that the other day, and that has in relation to what my grand aunt told me, she's 82 now, 84. She said, but you know, Pierre, when we were in school, when you were little kids, we were told there was four race. The white race, the black race, the red race, the yellow race. And it's, it's been, we've been, yeah. been told this for many, 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 many years. I think where we, we sometimes struggle is there's one race. Human race. <laughs> there's one race. Yeah. And I don't know why we're not emphasizing on this more and still trying to divide some stuff. I mean, it's really one race, one blood, basta. Mm, yeah, Nothing yeah. else to say. Just have to, yeah, I mean, there's, I think the thing is with any story like this, follow the money. <laughs> and then you'll, <laughs> then you'll find out yeah, yeah. where the motives yeah. are, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. Uh, no, Piero, thanks for your time. Appreciate well, it. I hope, uh, I hope it was um, helpful. That was great. Really, really good. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, really, really, really uh, exciting. And, you know, as and, life moves on. You know. Yes. And thank you for doing this. And, and you know, I hope everything works. And, and yeah. uh, that's the Fantastic. most important now. Appreciate All right. That. All right. Talk to you soon then. Okay. Take care. Yeah. See All you right. Later. Take care. Good luck. Bye. Bye.